Are we good? Yep. All right. folks, welcome to Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues in K-12 education. We made this show because we believe that conversations about addressing challenges in education should be open and accessible. There's a lot that we could figure out when we do it together, and this podcast offers you a seat at the table as we discuss some of the key issues facing our students and educators, both here in Virginia and across the country. To better understand our approach to doing that, I need to let you know a little bit more about the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium, or MERC, as we call it here at VCU. In 1991, MERC was established as a partnership between Virginia Commonwealth University and local school divisions to identify and address challenges in education through research. Over the past 25 years, MERC has grown to serve seven school divisions in the metropolitan Richmond area. We have a council with stakeholders from the university, school divisions, and the community. This collection of scholars and practitioners brings a lot of insight to some really important issues in education. We believe that our collaboration is a vehicle for progress. We identify important issues, we conduct studies, and we share our results. We want you to be a part of that conversation. My name is David Naff, and I'm a PhD candidate studying educational psychology here at VCU, and I'm the host of this show. I believe that you are listening because you believe in the importance of educating all of our K-12 students in a thoughtful, equitable way. You and I both recognize that there are ways that we currently fall short in that effort and that together we can figure out how to move forward in a way that best benefits our students, their families, and the educators who work with them. Education is a community effort, and we are proud to be a part of it. I hope you'll join us not just for this first episode, but in the future as we update you on important studies happening here at Merck and engage in discussions designed to critically examine the nature of our education system. We have important work ahead of us. Thanks for being a part of it. This first episode featured a discussion with members of our study team from the Achieving Racial Equity and Disciplinary Policies and Practices Merck study. Joining us for this episode was Ade Tafera, an assistant professor in the Foundations of Education Department of the VCU School of Education. Dr. Tafera is one of the principal investigators for this study. Jesse Sinishaw, the interim director for the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium. Dr. Sinishaw is also one of the principal investigators for this study. Uh, Dr. William Noel, the director for the Henrico County Public School Student Support and Disciplinary Review Board. Rachel Levy, a Ph.D. student studying educational leadership at VCU. And Evandra Catherine, another Ph.D. student studying special education at VCU and the director of community engagement for the Department of African American Studies at VCU. Each of these people are members of this study team and bring unique insight from research and practice. Our conversation included discussions of key definitions, exploration of evidence of racial disproportionality in school discipline, key findings from the research literature, uh, applications of this research in school settings, next steps for the study, and potential policy shifts in the new presidential administration related to this issue. We had a great conversation that lasted about an hour, and we have more episodes planned for this team and this topic. Enjoy! Hey everyone, welcome to Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium at Virginia Commonwealth University. Today's a big day. This is the first episode of hopefully several episodes um, of dynamic conversations that we have about research um, here at VCU with Merck. Um, My name is David Naff. I'm a PhD candidate here studying educational psychology. 
at VCU. If you're curious about my qualifications for hosting this show, I used to be a high school counselor. Um, and my side gig with that is that I was the volunteer announcer for our JV girls soccer team. So it's a pretty big deal. So it's not my first time being on a microphone, not to brag. Um, the purpose of the show is to share research throughout Merck studies that occur throughout the year. Um, we'll have some other episodes related as we go along. We're going to kind of keep this casual and figure out what works best um, and whatever it is that you want to listen to. We were having these conversations anyway within our study teams, and so this is just something that you, the listener, we just wanted to invite you to the table. So that's what we're here for today. Uh, this is our first ever episode, so we're really excited about it. And we're planning on conducting these hopefully monthly around there. It depends on how things evolve with our studies, but there could be some other cool events that come up as we go that we might hop in and do more episodes along the way. So look forward to that. Today's topic, we're focusing on equity and discipline and racial disproportionality. We've got a really great study team assembled here. I'm surrounded by um, brilliant, wonderful people, also humble people, um, who are excited to be here, who have a lot of great perspectives to share. We've got folks from VC, we have folks from the community, um, students, faculty, some really great people here. Um, so let's get started with it with some introductions. We're going to start over here to my left, which is Evandra. So tell us your name and uh, what your position is and how you got involved in this study. Yeah, I'm, Ev I'm Evandra Catherine. I'm a PhD student in the Special Education and Disability Policy Track here at VCU. And um, hopefully this will be part of my dissertation study. So, And I was invited onto the team. So thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here. Boy. I'm uh, William Noel, Director of Student Support and Disciplinary Review with Henrico County Public Schools. Um, I'm very much interested in this topic, uh, being the hearing officer for the county uh, and someone who has seen firsthand uh, the disproportionality when it comes to discipline. And uh, I'm fortunate to have the task of addressing that and, and hopefully remedying it. So thank you for the invite. Jesse. Yep. Hi, I'm Jesse Seneschal, and I'm the interim director for the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium and um, have uh, supported the development of this team. Um, yeah. so. Thanks for hosting. Sure. Mm -hmm. Ade. Yep. Um, I'm Ade Tafera. I am an assistant professor in the foundations department in the School of Education here at VCU. I'm a co-PI uh, on the project and, um, yeah, also really excited to be part of the team. What's a PI? Um, so a principal investigator. So I'm a co-principal investigator with Jesse and then also with Genevieve Siegel-Holly, who couldn't be here but is also a co-PI. Mm -hmm. Surely join us on a future episode. That's right. That's right. Without a doubt. And then Rachel. Hi, my name is Rachel Levy, and I am a PhD student at uh, VCU. I am in the Department of Educational Leadership, and I study politics of education, education policy, and um, school governance. And I got involved um, in this study, or I applied to be involved in this study because it's a uh, a topic of great interest to me, and also I am um, a student of Dr. Siegel Holly. Good deal. So it's a, an organic fit for sure. And as I mentioned, my name is David. Um, I'm not just the host of the show, I'm also really interested in this. This is, I'm really excited that this is our first topic. Okay, so let's start with some key definitions, which is a really important way for us to get started with any topic or any conversation about research. Um, so, Ade, why don't you walk us through a couple of definitions that are really important? And related to this study, so let's start with equity. What do we mean when we say equity? Yeah, so a good place to start. Um, 
typically people will use the word uh, equity interchangeably with equality, right? And so um, with equality, there's this assumption that all students are sort of positioned in the same way and should have equal access to resources and then so that there are sort of equal outcomes. Um, but what equ equity really refers to and assumes is that students are positioned very differently based on a number of factors, um, socioeconomic status of their families, uh, resources and opportunities within communities, and equity takes that into consideration and says that there's some students who, based on um, the resources available, may need more resources, right? And so, therefore, um, we may equip some students uh, with the resources that they need more in order to have... Um, better sort of outcomes. So there's, in my class, uh, I usually use a visual uh, that kind of demonstrates the difference between equity and equality. And so the visual shows this game, the sporting event that's being um, played, and then there's this kind of fence that separates these three individuals, right? And so the three individuals in one image, they're all on equal footing and they're all standing on the ground, right? But there's one who's really tall who can definitely see the sporting event. There's the second who's sort of just peeking over the, the fence and can see it, but just barely. And there's one that's really short and the fence is completely blocking his view of the game. So they're all positioned equally, but clearly have different access to watching the game. What equity considers is, okay, there are some students who need a bowl then to be able to see that game equally. So the student in the middle or the young person in the middle has one bolster that puts him on equal footing as the first and then the, the shortest one has two bolsters that allows him to see the game on equal footing. So that's essentially what we're trying to do when it comes to issues of equity. So equity and equality not necessarily synonymous but related. Exactly. So equal yep. access is what we're talking about. How about school discipline? When we're talking about that, what does that mean? Yeah, so school discipline, a set of practices and policies um, that schools districts, divisions um, put together to ensure that the school climate is one conducive of le to learning, right? Um, and so that is kind of a set of guidelines and practices um, that allow a safe and uh, high quality kind of learning environment. So it's a set of rules. Um, I think there are probably others who might have a better definition of school discipline. <laughs> Well, uh, I agree totally with what you're saying, but the, I guess discipline, um, I prefer expectations, but, but school discipline, um, policies, practices put in place um, to uh, encourage students to uh, meet the expectations, follow the code of student conduct, so that that community and that climate can be achieved, like they said, regarding um, creating that, that climate that is conducive to learning. Um, the one thing uh, about discipline I think that people get that they find negative um, is when they try to uh, associate discipline with punishment. And, and we don't want to punish students because punishment is to control. Discipline will teach and guide. And that's what we want students and that goal of the office that I direct and I'll talk about a bit later is to uh, provide students with supports and interventions so they don't make the same mistake or the, the, the same poor choice, rather, that they did. We want to provide them better ways to do it so they don't miss out on class time. Yeah, absolutely. I think we, uh, we lose the discipline element of what discipline's supposed to be and that a lot of times it'll um, turn into something purely punitive. And that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today for sure. Um, okay, how about disproportionality? Probably the biggest word we're talking about yeah. today. So disproportionality or um, racial disproportionality specifically usually refers to the over, in, in the context of discipline, refers to the overrepresentation of students of color, particularly black and Latino youth, who are being... Um, 
suspended and expelled at higher rates than their peers, right, or than their representation within a school overall. Um, so it's important that in the literature, racial disproportionality can refer to um, issues of discipline, but also placement in special education. Um, so there's literature on racial disproportionality in placement in special education, and then there's also racial disproportionality of students in general and special education being expelled and um, suspended. Yeah. So this is something that's grounded in a broader conversation. Yes, like exactly. Also in advanced courses and yep. right. extracurriculars yep. is also a a source of disproportionality in our public schools. Yeah, yeah. So there could be, you know, it can be the overrepresentation or underrepresentation mm -hmm. in some cases, as Rachel's pointing out, yeah. of students in particular programs like gifted or advanced placement. Right? Yeah. So it's important to focus on the racial element of this for sure. Yeah. It could be socioeconomic too, or right. um, mm -hmm. yeah, or uh, yeah, special ed status or things like that. Mm -hmm. Any sort of demographic variables that you're that are sort of um, disproportionately distributed related to resources, right? Yeah. It all contributes, for sure. Yeah. I think in our context, for disproportionality, it comes down to the definitions mm -hmm. that a school may use or a state may use or what the federal government may use and how what region you're in in the country, whether or not a disproportionality may exist based on how you define something. You know, And the research can give plenty of examples where two states compared with two sets of discipline practices and they have two separate disproportionalities. And it's because their definition is different. It may be two times the, the, the majority population or three times the majority population. Mm. And so you get disproportionalities that are masked by those definitions. So mm. I think a lot of that plays into what we, when we get to disproportionalities, who's defining it? Yeah. Who, who's, whose legislator is it beneficial to? How is it defined in the policy? Mm -hmm. yeah. and, uh, you know, policy and practice is part of what we do at Merck. So mm. understanding that. We have to know what the policy is stating, how it's defined. Yeah, we have a moving target, it sounds mm -hmm. like, a little bit. So, yeah. Um, and then finally, a, a term that we, we hear a lot but might be confusing to some folks. What about the school-to-prison pipeline? What are we talking about with that? Yeah, so uh, it's a term or a metaphor that sort of refers to the, the, the role that schools play in putting students, um, particularly especially students of color, black and Latino, Latino youth, on this path towards um, incarceration. So whether it's placement in juvenile justice system or in the, in the prison system, this relationship between racial disproportionality in school discipline um, and entrance into the, um, ju the juvenile justice system or incar incarceration higher incarceration rates of those students. Mm -hmm. There's a presentation that I do uh, in one of the slides, and it speaks to um, school-to-prison pipeline. It's a, a cartoon of a, a kid being held out of a window, um, and the guy has you know alternative education insurance, so that's representing the schools. And he said, don't worry, we can't save this one, but don't worry, someone will catch him. And below, it's gangs, it's the judicial system, it's the welfare system. And unfortunately, that, that is true. If, if we don't reach them and teach them a better way, then they will get consumed by gangs and ultimately prison. Um, so it, it, it's very real. The, the school, to pipe, school to prison pipeline is real. Um, there's a singer, Aloe Black. He teamed up with the NEA uh, in doing a program to address the school to prison pipeline. 
Um, so, uh, and fortunately, that, that's one of the things that we're trying to do is to make sure that as a county, as the division that I represent, we're not contributing to that school-to-prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. And you just introduced another term that I'm not sure everybody's going to be familiar with. When you say alternative, alternative education, what mm-hmm. are you speaking about there? Alternative education... Um, when students are, I'll give an example for our division, if a student is long-term suspended or recommended for expulsion and they happen to be expelled, in Henrico, we don't just put them out of school for 365. They are sent to one of our alternative educations, just a site away from their comprehensive school. They're taught by Henrico County educators, uh, fully certified, um, but they're just away from uh, their comprehensive setting. Mm-hmm. And after their long-term suspension is over or their recommendation for their expulsion is over, they return to their uh, home school. Mm-hmm. But uh, through my office, they are provided services, either one of the coordinators of behavior support, someone <clears throat> from uh, the behavior support team will, will uh, work with the student. And some students uh, will require additional supports, and then we try to provide them. Yeah. So the goal is to get them back into the classroom where they they originated. Yes. And, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I think it's senseless to think that they will return to their comprehensive school better than they left if we don't provide something for them in place. All right. Great. This is a really helpful starting point. These are terms that are going to come up throughout our conversation, so it's good for us to all be on the same page first. Um, all right. Let's let's hop into some background on this study. Jesse Senechal, our interim director of Merck, can you talk a little bit about how this study originated and sort of the thought process behind why we're here, why we're talking about this? Yeah. Uh, well, the way that Merck works, um, Merck is a research alliance, which means it's a, a collaboration between a university uh, school of Education and um, surrounding school divisions. Um, and so the research agenda that we have is collaboratively set. Um, so the spark for this study was actually a, a, a proposal from the superintendents that they were really interested in issues of equity broadly. And it wasn't really defined. And they were saying, we, uh, we were feeling like there's, there's issues of equity that are going on in the region. And, you know, this was um, talked about in relationship to um, placement within special education or gifted programs. It was talked about along a number of different kind of like topic areas. But discipline started to emerge as a topic that they're really focused on. And I think that was kind of in, in, um, in sync with some national dialogues that have been going on and studies that have been coming out showing disproportionality and discipline. Uh, and so uh, at a certain point, that, that became sort of the resolved topic. Um, that led me at the time to go talk to Genevieve, um, who uh, has done some work around issues of equity for sure, research around that, and um, sort of proposed the idea of a study around this. And then that um, led to a proposal. Uh, Ade was invited on board, and then we got some graduate students um, on board. But um, yeah, I think it was. Um, I mean, I think it's a really it's a really great study because it is has the potential to shine light on something that we, I think we all recognize that we're not doing well mm-hmm. and that how can we do this better? And, and I, I really appreciate the, the um, openness of the superintendents and of the school divisions to saying, you know, um, we recognize we could do this better and, and we really need, want to look at this question carefully. Um, and I think the study team that we have together is, is a really um, going to be a strong support for, for moving this forward. So, um, yeah. That's the basically history. Yeah. And you yeah. mentioned that it, it was collaboratively set. Can mm-hmm. you give just a really brief background for what that means in terms of what Merck does? Like, what is Merck? What does it do? Just sort of in a nutshell. When you say collaboratively set, why is that important? What does that mean? Well, it's, um, to say this briefly, it's, um, this is, about, I guess, about community-engaged research. And what community-engaged research is about is thinking about a process of inquiry of, you know, in this case, we're doing social science inquiry. And we're thinking about, if you think about research, how can each of the phases of research be more collaborative in nature? So it's not the researcher doing research on communities, but it's um, 
how are the problem, what, what problems are identified? How is problems identified? Is that something that the researcher does or is it something that researcher does in collaboration with community members? How is uh, the research designed? How are the, um, like the data collection methods designed? Mm-hmm. How is data analyzed? How is it disseminated? If along that way you're doing it in ways which is involves the engagement of, of critical stakeholders, then it's a community engaged project. And so when I say that this was the, the this was a collaborative project, this was a this was not something that I brought to the table or anybody at VC brought to the table. It's something that the the community, meaning the schools, brought to the table and said we we would like to investigate this topic. And then we the university's role was to sort of support and facilitate the process. Okay. Yeah. Great. yeah. Um, so it sounds like what Merck does essentially is formulate a study team around some of these key issues that are identified by the partnering school divisions. We bring the research expertise, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the folks from the divisions bring the practice expertise, and I think that makes for a powerful study. Yeah, I think you know doing it doing it in one one area or the other is, would be would be I think it's going to be would be less fruitful than what we're going to have here. Yeah, and disseminating that information is a key part of what we do, and so that's why we're having a conversation that's today and sharing it with you. Yeah. So William, mm-hmm. um, you experience this all the time in your job. What is the evidence that we know that students of color and other mi- uh, minoritized groups are disproportionately subject to disciplinary action in schools? Well, I'll start with uh, the groups that are uh, particularly affected. And Dave mentioned it earlier, African-American students and, and students with disabilities, uh, particularly African-American students with disabilities. Mm. Um, uh, part of the question was about what geographic areas. Uh, I can say for, for uh, the county I serve, the, the less affluent areas counted, the parts of the, the county, nearly 80% of the students with uh, three or more out-of-school suspensions um, live in two of our five magisterial districts. Mm-hmm. And uh, just so happens to be those districts are where there's at least 50 to almost 75% of students on free and reduced lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, a, a relationship there uh, to, to poverty as well. Um, the evidence that, that shows... Um, I saw some 14, 15 data that said 1.2 African-American students were suspended from school in a single year, 1.2 million. Hmm. Uh, and 55% of that 1.2 million came from 13 southern states, including our own Commonwealth of Virginia. Hmm. So uh, definitely we have to give, give some attention to, to that number. Um, I looked at VDOE data from 14, 15, and African-American students make up 20, I think it's at 23% of the total student population, mm-hmm. but 58% of short-term suspensions, mm-hmm. 60% of long-term suspensions, and 55% of expulsions. Um, that, that Those numbers are rather rather troubling. Uh, compared to Caucasian students, 51% of the total population, yet 29, well, 29, 29.5% of short-term suspensions, 26% of long-term suspensions, and 38% of expulsions. So we definitely to give uh, uh, attention to that. And then I went and looked at our own data in Henrico County. Um, and 15, 16, we had 94% of our students had no out-of-school suspensions at all. Uh, 4% had um, at least one out-of-school suspension and 2% at least two out-of-school suspensions. Mm. Now that may sound good, but of that 2%, 80% were African-American students and 15% uh, Caucasian students, 5% Hispanic students. So we have to give uh, att- attention to that numbers. Now, those numbers are troubling, but the good news is um, the, the office that I uh, direct, Student Support and Disciplinary Review, 
we are putting things in place to address those numbers, uh, support and interventions. We now have at least five or six previously standalone departments mm -hmm. that are now under our, our umbrella that specialize in student supports and interventions. Um, behavior support team, positive behavior interventions, and um, positive behavior intervention supports, culturally relevant PBIS, um, issues dealing with cultural competency, implicit bias, uh, all of that just to get, get uh, our staff to realize that something is going on mm -hmm. and we need to uh, fix it. And that's why, you know, I, I can't be more pleased to be a part of this study group. It sounds like this is a broad issue, but something that needs to be tackled on the local level. Right, right. And overall, the supports that we put in place, and Justin and I were talking earlier, uh, our, our numbers have reduced overall significantly. But we still have some areas to go when it comes to uh, students of color. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit more about how socioeconomic status and disability comes into play with this, too? Well, uh, looking at the, the data from our suspensions, some of the students who reside in these areas, they have other things to address, to, to deal with. Um, you know, some students, and I, and I think if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm -hmm. you know, we have um, students coming to us and they're on the, uh, the survival stage and they're thinking about, you know, what they're going to have when they get home or what the areas are coming from. We want them to be on the, um, we want them to be on the self-actualization and they're coming to us with different needs. We want them to be able to tell us the causes of the War of 1812 when they're thinking, you know, how am I going to get home? What am I going to do when I get home? What am I going to have to eat when I get home? You know, coming to us from homes with little heat, or et cetera. Um, so there's that disconnect. Um, if we get to really know our kids and know their background and their, their situations, I think we're better. And I always say it may be more important to know who we teach than, than what we teach. Okay. Yeah. So there's basic needs that come right. into play there. Too. Right. Yeah. Um, can, I, can I add something real quick? Sure. Um, I was thinking about, and this is something that we've kind of been wrestling with from the beginning is, and I think probably they might want to expand on this or anybody else, but the idea that um, that even when studies have shown that even when controlling for poverty, that race is still an issue. That mm -hmm. it, we, don't, we don't just want to say that black students are being suspended more because um, it's it's an issue of poverty. There's also some racial bias that's going on in the schools, and that's something that's shown in the research and that we want to be attentive to when we go into study. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. You know, um, on, the, on the one hand, it is important to consider these contextual factors, right? Like, what are students faced with in and out of school? And how are those factors contributing to things like student behavior? So um, you know, if, if students are grappling with issues of hunger or if there are issues with uh, community safety, right? All of these things um, are factors that's, that students are being affected by and influence their behavior within schools. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, it becomes really easy, I think, for people to not want to discuss the issue of race and instead talk about issues of poverty um, or income as a proxy for race. When we know, as Jesse mentioned, that a number of studies that even controlling for um, poverty, when you're comparing students who have the same income level, we still see students of color, black students in particular, suspended and expelled at higher rates. Uh, Ajay, can you clarify what you mean by controlling for poverty? somebody um, yeah. maybe has a, have a lot of a stats background. Yeah, so if I remember correctly, because it's been a long time, um, you know, there are statistical methods that you use. So if you take um, families who have the exact 
uh, various income levels, mm -hmm. uh, you will control for differences in those factors, right? And so then you can isolate and um, compare students of the same income in order mm -hmm. to understand what outcomes are. Jesse can probably explain mm -hmm. how that has a better yeah. definition. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's basically what she said, but the basic idea is that we're looking at white students and black students from the same SES right. content, and there's that's higher rates one. among the black mm -hmm. students. I mean, if that's, you're controlling for that, that factor, yeah. Yeah, that's, mm -hmm. yeah, that's helpful clarification. Um, what are some of the potential long-term questions of this race, racial disproportionality in school discipline? What could happen if we don't address this? I think, um, well, not I think, but the research will mm -hmm. mention things that we all are aware of when it comes to achievement gaps and how the, the lack of educational opportunities exists and the perceptions of schools with students and families and teachers. And we know the long-term consequences of that based on the research. And I think mostly when, you, when I, when I um, read the question, I thought discipline is affecting black males, black males. And if you look at the way that discipline works, black males are being disciplined because they're black, they're, they're family, their backgrounds and everything like that. And they're not being disciplined equally. So what you get is a breakdown in the black family. And so the, the most long term consequence I could think about is the school to prison pipeline taking more black males out of the community. And it's a constant breakdown of the family. And then the next set of students, the next set of kids that come into those families are in that same cyclical process. And so if we don't address it, the long-term consequence is going to be the consistent breakdown of the black community. And are these students being prepared to be college and career ready? And we're moving into a society where the majority of jobs are going to require some level of college. Mm -hmm. And if we're not keeping our students in school and they're being expelled, they're having a poor experience with the education system and they're dropping out, which one of the consequences of uh, disproportionate discipline is higher dropout rates. Mm -hmm. So how are we able to sustain these communities, I think, and how do we prepare the next generation of students coming up? And then where are the safety nets in the communities? So when you talk about long-term consequences, it drives the conversation in many different areas because you do have to understand you have a large population of students not in school. Where are they? Are there any community resources to be the safety net to catch them? And then we're criminalizing simple behavior in schools that individuals will do naturally as adults. And so everything becomes a negative reaction. And it's just like, how do you learn to be social and have pro-social behavior when it's criminalized off the bat. And I know that all of us in this room are old enough to know that we've gotten in fights at school and we either got drugged to the office for part of the rest of the day and back to class or we talk it out. And now a fight is jail time, you know, and then because of the culture of jail, when you get in there, you're going to come out worse or you may not come out because you've committed another crime while in there. And so a simple fight has turned into an assault that's turned into malicious wounding. And, you know, so long-term consequences in me is really thinking about how we're criminalizing students' behavior, how we're really referring these students out. And some of the statistics that he mentioned about the majority of these students, uh, these African-American males, are in the southern states. What we think about the prison industrial complex, or we think about, the, you know, slavery and how it's written, you would think about, well, how do we keep that population coming if I just thought about it in, a, in, another, in another lens? Mm -hmm. But we're getting the same populations, those same families, those same generations, and so we're getting generational poverty. And these long-term consequences really can significantly impact if we don't continue to do the research that we're doing. Yeah. yeah when you hear those statistics about um, school discipline disproportionality, I feel like it, it's a direct parallel with the kind of things that you see in our prison system. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think of that, uh, the, the new uh, documentary that just came out on Netflix 13th. 13th and how powerful that is and how we've seen our 
prison population growing and how much of that is disproportionately African-American males. It's a important thing for us to keep in mind. And I think it's difficult to look at um, color or race when you're talking about disproportionality or discipline because the majority of students with disciplines are also a, a racial minority. So how you, how can you look at one without the other? You know, And then when you have a majority of students that are being covered under IDEA or special needs, then you have black males. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's one of those situations where the long-term consequences are if you have a disproportionate number in receiving special education services, where are those services in the community? There's, are there community speech therapists? Are there community occupational therapists? And he mentioned alternative settings. If you're covered under IDEA, you still have to be provided those services in your IEP in the alternative education setting. In most alternative education settings, are there, you know, those practitioners or clinicians that are there to provide those additional supports for social skills? But you're in that alternative setting. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll say one thing to a couple of things to, the, to that when we're talking IDEA. We have students who have uh, an IEP and they're long term suspended or rec for expulsion. I don't place them. The, the IEP team places them based on uh, the best, best possible place for them um, so they can get the services that they required. Um, a couple other things. Um, Evangel mentioned regarding the the long-term effects of this disproportionality, and I agree with uh, a number of the things she said, but I I had to just mention that, you know, as a hearing officer and as director of this office, a number of the things that used to be uh, taken to our SROs, school resource officers, um, are no longer taken to them um, because uh, Virginia was leading the way when it comes to referrals to law enforcement. Um, So one thing that... uh, and when I met with uh, my assistant superintendent and uh, the principals and other directors, it, it's pretty simple. We as school staff, we enforce the Code of Student Conduct. Mm-hmm. Our resource officers infor- enforce the Code of Virginia. It is not against the law for a child not to remove their hat when they come into the building. So don't call the, your SRO yeah. to deal with that mm-hmm. um, or use the phone. Anything like that, this is a school-based matter, and it should not be criminalized. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what we're seeing also is uh, the decodes, and that leads to a great disproportionality, decodes, disrespect, defiance, so forth and so on. Um, it's, it's not disrespectful. Um, if, for, for example, I, I was in a hearing, and, and the student said to me, you know, because I asked him, I said, all right, well, explain to me what happened. And he said, all right, dog, look, this is what happened. And, and, you know, and the principal was like, wait, 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 wait a minute. That's Dr. Noel. You're being disrespectful. I said, no, that's not that's not disrespectful. <laughs> I, I take it as a student is just trying to connect with me. We were having a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, but after the hearing, I told him, I said, you know, that wasn't disrespectful. But if, if you shoot down a child like that, they're never going to try to connect with you again. Mm-hmm. So um, and, and a lot of students we find are being well, they used to be suspended for for matters like that. And then our board um, allowed us to reduce some of the code violation categories for those type of offenses that they don't require out-of-school suspension because our kids need to be in school. Richmond City recently did a study. Richmond Police Department and Richmond Public Schools came together and said, let's look at our data. And what they found was about 80% of the students that they were referring to law enforcement were for nonviolent offenses, Mm -hmm. such as talking back to a teacher or cell phones or even truancy. So they were suspending a number of students for not coming to school to 
to suspend them from, you know, to how can you suspend for truancy? And so what they found was in Richmond City, it probably would be a better idea to address these minor offenses mm-hmm. through another type of program, like maybe conflict resolution or something like that, instead mm-hmm. of referring them out. And so they're working on something in, uh, within Richmond where you go through a nine-week program, and if you complete this nine-week program, then the charge that would have gone to the law enforcement will not go. It, but the program requires parent and community engagement and student. The achievement gap might be somewhat related to the loss of instruction that happens. I mean, if we think about there being a racial achievement gap, to what extent is that the fact that students are losing hundreds and hundreds of hours from all these suspensions and getting pulled out of class? Um, and the, the other thing I wanted to say that um, Dr. Noel or Williams' um, story reminded me of about the students' um, interaction with you is uh, this is a it, it's about culture, you know. It's about are we respecting the students' cultures that they're bringing in? It is it about are are they really doing something that is um, a discipline issue, or or is it just a, 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 a I'm not your culture is offensive to me or your, it's a it's a cultural understanding piece um, so that yeah this student is using the language that they know for connecting to people and for some reason that becomes a discipline problem then and then it just escalates from there and so yeah. we're gonna have to leave that there because we've got yeah. a lot that we need to talk about today but there's a, um, a couple of things that I think we need to address really quick because we had a couple of new terms come up that we need to define in case somebody's not familiar with them so somebody mentioned IDEA the Individuals with Disability Education Act. Okay. And then an IEP. Individualized Education Plan. All right. So when we're talking about students with disabilities, yeah, an SRO. School resource officer. There we go. Yeah. And I think I heard restorative justice at one point, too. That is a, uh, um, well, in Iraq, we use restorative practices, a version of that. And that can be, um, and certainly if anyone else can speak on it, please do. Um, a practice where both parties uh, involved in conflict are brought together and they try to work out the situation before it has to lead to any sort of out of school suspension, in school suspension. Um, it works well at the school level. Um, by the time it gets to uh, the district level, we not going to continue beyond that. Mm-hmm. So maybe a way for us to help avoid this criminalization of everyday behavior like we were talking about. Evandra said something that I think really leads well into our next question. She, she opened up her statement by saying, this is what I think versus what the research says, right? So this is something that maybe we see a lot of evidence in our own work as educators and practitioners. Um, but there's a lot of research about this too. And so Rachel, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the, the findings that are emerging from the literature that you've seen so far. Okay, so a lot of uh, what people are sharing here is absolutely bears out in the literature. Um, the first, um, so we ca- I kind of looked at, we looked at kind of three themes, um, factors causing disparate disciplinary practices, consequences of that, and what some alternatives may be. Um, so the criminalization piece is huge. In um, the 1990s, zero tolerance policies became much more popular, um, in part in response to the Federal Gun-Free Schools Act of 1994. And this um, act mandated that in order to qualify for federal funding, states had to enact laws requiring that school districts um, expel students if they brought firearms to school. Mm-hmm. And this is, or other weapons, and this also, um, zero tolerance policies also apply to drugs and to assault. Mm. And so that really upped kind of criminalization of, of certain behaviors. Mm. One researcher found that under state, states with zero tolerance laws, black students were suspended at three times the rate of white students. Mm-hmm. So that intersects with the racial disproportionality. And yes, all, all the studies show that even when you account for 
um, poverty, there are still grave racial disparities um, in discipline. And one, one little thing I want to push back on is the idea that it's race and not racism, because it's not someone's race that makes them be disciplined unfairly, it's someone's racism, whether that's implicit or explicit. Um, and so that's something that um, the sociologist, um, I think his first name is Eduardo Bonilla, has talked about a lot that um, it's important that we think about in terms of racism in, in, instead of race. So other, um, other factors, um, black students are more likely to be monitored, scrutinized, suspected, and then sanctioned for the same infractions that white students are not hmm. um, scrutinized, monitored, and suspected for. The other thing is that there's the, the research shows there's differences. White students are often being referred for objectively observable behaviors, such hmm. as smoking, such as vandalism, hmm. um, whereas black students are more likely to be referred for behaviors that are more subjective in nature, such hmm. as disrespect and loitering. Mm -hmm. um, and I will say that the disproportionalities are more grave for males, but they also occur for females. Mm -hmm. So you could have um, a black female student wearing the same thing that a white female student is wearing, and the, the black female student will be sent to the office and, and sent home. So that's, mm -hmm. that's important to notice. Um, geography is important. Um, schools in lower income areas urban schools, schools with greater numbers of black students all experience um, greater rates of, of disproportionality. There's also a, a, a lack of consistency um, and district policy guidance to schools, teachers, and administrators that can cause problems. Um, there, finally, there is a cultural mismatch between our teachers and our students. 80% hmm. um, of the teaching force in the United States is white. I think maybe 70% is female, white females. Hmm. And so there's a lot of research around how um, not just the rates, like the rates that white teachers versus black teachers will discipline white students versus black students, but also their attitudes um, and opinions mm -hmm. that have come out in the research that's really um, interesting. Parental expectations, there was one uh, mixed methods case study that we looked at of a racially diverse suburban high school and white parents will, will intervene much more um, proactively and aggressively than, than black parents will. Mm -hmm. And so um, teachers and staff members will respond to that, but they'll also anticipate it mm -hmm. and change how they um, treat students. And lack of resources is huge. Mm -hmm. So schools with, with higher rates of exclusionary discipline practices are often those with fewer resources, mm -hmm. um, fewer materials, less rich curricula, fewer um, um, advanced courses, and, and fewer highly qualified and experienced teachers. Mm -hmm. um, and there's also something to be said for a lack of resources to implement alternative programs. Mm -hmm. um, it becomes just simpler, I think, for people to just just suspend. Let's just suspend and then we won't have to deal with it. Um, and so then we also looked at alternative discipline models. I don't know if you want to talk about that now, but sure. in terms of, um, Will, Will brought those up, um, restorative practices, trauma-informed care, positive behavioral interventions and supports, also known as PBIS. Mm. And then there's culturally relevant uh, PBIS because PBIS can be implemented in a way that is um, very skewed to the dominant 
culture and doesn't take into account cultures, different cultures. And so um, culturally relevant PBIS grew out of that, mm -hmm. that um, the research shows that all these, all these alternative practices help to reduce disproportionality and they help to reduce the number of, um, of exclusionary disciplinary practices, but it doesn't, the disparity is still there. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds like the literature has a lot of evidence that this is an issue, but also that there's some solutions that have been shown to be effective. For yes. Yeah. But you still have to keep in mind that there's still the dominant white culture mm -hmm. and that's still going to play a role. Even if you implement all these, all these things, there's still um, which helps. There's still work to be done if you are not um, taking into account cultural differences or your own educators' own biases yeah. that they bring. Yeah. So I have two questions based off of what you've said here. Um, one, in your assessment, how extensive would you say the literature is on this topic? Is it huge? Is it being explored in a lot of different ways? I, I think so because there's constantly <laughs> new studies. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot, and Ade could speak a lot more too, because that's her area of expertise in terms of students with disabilities. Mm -hmm. So the literature is is pretty extensive. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of studying the alternative discipline models, that's a more burgeoning field, but it's it's being studied a lot now because school districts are showing interest in in going a different a different route than the zero zero uh, tolerance route yeah it's yeah go ahead Andrew. i just wanted to add something to the research too is to kind of keep things in perspective historically and to know the majority of this research this data that we get now comes from legislation that now we have data collection like ocr and this data collection that we utilize now is not really that old you know like you mentioned it started in 1994 when zero tolerance happened, but we just in 1997 um, was when the students with disability, when students with disabilities, was placed into policy, mm -hmm. and that was just 1997. And so historically, I think that this data is the body of research is large, and we have a lot of data. It's just now we are at a point. What do we do that we have this data? But I think keeping it into context, we really are just getting this data. But a lot of this is being driven by policy. And if we want to know how it began, it began with policy. How is it going to end? Is it going to end with policy? But in March of 2014, the Department of Justice and the Department of Ed came together and they put out a joint Dear Colleague letter. And they said that our Office of Civil Rights and both agencies are going to come together and look at school discipline disproportionalities and inequities in discipline amongst uh, racial minorities. And I think that if we're looking at a next wave of what we may call school discipline reform, you're going to have these two agencies, if we get to keep them in the new administration, if we get to keep our Office of Civil Rights around, to take this data and continue to give guidance out to the states. And I think once states can get better guidance on how to structure their practices and procedures, we can maybe see a change. Mm -hmm. But states are working with minimal guidance on how to actually discipline students, what are alternatives to suspension, and then what is the capacity for training and technical assistance centers to assist with these interventions? Do we have the clinicians in the schools that are have a background in behavioral intervention plans or functional behavior assessments? You know, who's providing these resources to students for, so that we can fix the disproportionality? So I think one of the things that's interesting is that the models out there, and Rachel was talking about this a little bit, is that um, they might have like a sort of a more, they're, they're better than zero tolerance in that they're maybe a little bit more um, focused on the positive, uh, like the positive behaviors and reinforcing those. Um, and they might be race neutral in their policy sort of orientation, but in implementation, the racial bias stuff often still comes out. Mm -hmm. Now with that, 
what that also suggests is that the solution to this is we need we need you know new models of programs. But we also need really intensive professional development because this is about how these policies are implemented, which is at the school level by the teachers, by the um, school resource officers, by the you know the administrators, um, and that is resource intensive. And that, so really, what we need is we need new policies, but we also need a really sort of influx of money into like really supporting the professional development of teachers so they can act this in meaningful ways and in ways that are true to the principles of the programs. And teacher preparation and behavior management and teacher preparation can be for the entire um, teacher degree 30 minutes to an hour and a half is all the training they get in teacher prep on behavior management. So to your point, you have these teachers entering into the schools, but is there resources there to continue that continuing education? It's like we have our technical sciences and our technical degrees. They have to have continuing education in certain aspects, but our teachers should have continuing education in behavioral management because our schools are getting more racially diverse and our education force isn't getting any more racially diverse. So So we're going to need to leave that there for right now so we can move on, but... If, in case um, you're listening and you're really interested in this policy element of this, we're not done talking about that today, I promise. We're going to wrap up with a good um, discussion about new directions in the in the policy realm on this. Um, but considering the research that already exists, Ade, can you give us an idea about what kind of pertinent questions have emerged from the literature that we're hoping to address with this study? So, you know, I think in part what the conversation is demonstrating is really that there are a number of factors that contribute to racial dis- disproportionality. Um, and it's, it's a complex issue and it's a complex problem that requires sort of, um, you know, nuanced and well thought out uh, responses, right? It's not an easy sort of fix. Um, and I think it, it starts with this idea that there's a larger history that has contributed to racial disproportionality. Part of that, um, as Rachel mentioned, is related to this the policy context. So in, in the 1990s, under the Clinton administration, um, there was really this push for um, you know zero tolerance policies within schools, three strikes, you're out, um, and that really laid the foundation for um, some of the, the reasons why we have racial disproportionality today. I also, you know, I, I think it's important to think about the larger, even a more broader historical perspective, right? And so there's um, research that really, uh, Michael Dumas at the University of California, Berkeley, talks about this idea of the role of um, students of color, particularly black students, and, and, and the black body, right? And so how historically black students, black male students, have been perceived as being disruptive, um, deviant, problematic, right? That is a part of our historical kind of um, narrative that contributes to the reasons why I think we have issues with racial bias and implicit bias um, that oftentimes people don't necessarily uh, think about when we, when we think about the pro- current problem today, that it's related to this larger, I think, historical issue. That Bonilla Bonilla Silva, Silva. That's right. um, talks <laughs> about in his, in his in his research, uh, though people still want to kind of talk about um, being colorblind, right? That that especially practitioners or educators say that no, I don't see color, I don't see race, but yet we see these very racialized outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, what's the right appro- the right response to somebody saying I don't see color? Because you hear that a lot these days. Yeah, I mean, my response is always then. Um, is to provide the facts. <laughs> like we know that there are actually these racialized outcomes and to get um, folks' responses to that. But the, the truth is, I think it does 
go back to Jesse's mm-hmm. point about training and professional development, right? Nobody wants to be um, perceived as individually racist, but that what we're talking about is more of a systemic problem yeah. with racism. Mm-hmm. And when you take away the blame on the individual and relate it more to this larger structural issue of racism mm-hmm. and racial implications, right? Because that's really what we're focused on. Um, then people tend to be a little bit more. Uh, open to talking about mm-hmm. those issues. So I think the first part in terms of our work and our study is to understand the historical uh, context in terms of racial disproportionality and those factors that are contributing to disproportionality. So where is it happening geographically? Um, what are the what do, you know? What do these schools look like in terms of those that are having issues with disproportionality? Are they suburban? Are they urban? Are they high income, low income? Mm-hmm. Um, that hopefully will be something that we can tease out and understand a little bit more in depth. And um, what kinds of interventions are our schools using? Virginia is an interesting state. You know, I, I come from the West Coast where there's slightly where in California and, and um, historically in New Mexico, there's been slightly more centralized control in education, whereas Virginia is very decentralized. So there's no one kind of accountability system when it comes to disproportionality or one kind of intervention that all divisions use, right? Divisions are using interventions, um, different interventions, using the same interventions differently. And those are the kinds of, I think, um, the the differences that we want to understand and pick up on in our research. So what interventions are being used? Um, how are they being implemented? In what ways are they being implement, implemented differently? Um, so hopefully our research will be able to mm-hmm. unpack and understand some of those differences in more detail. Uh, Jesse, could you elaborate on what some of the next steps are in this study? Yeah, well, one thing we haven't talked about is what the study involves. And it, so it, it's a two-phase study. Um, There's two kind of main research components, and the first phase is about understanding um, sort of uh, what disproportionality looks like in the region, Mm -hmm. Um, and that involves analysis of data from Virginia Department of Education, um, discipline outcome data, um, and looking at a school-by-school basis uh, whether there is disproportionality. Um, And then in conjunction with that, we're doing a survey of all the schools in the region. So there's 211 schools in the Merck, uh, seven Merck school divisions, and there's going to be a survey going out to each school that will be filled out by one of the school leaders, probably the principal or an assistant principal, that will talk about what models of um, discipline they're using, uh, what types of professional development, again, are they are they um, using to support those models, uh, what uh, sort of leadership, how long they've been doing it. So we're really trying to understand this question of implementation at the local level. And then we'll be bringing those data sets together. And so we'll be looking at how does the model and um, the sort of quality of the implementation of the model relate to the discipline outcomes? And how does that also relate to community factors? And so with this, by looking at all the schools, we can say, you know, how do like community economic conditions, how might they influence these outcomes as well? So there's questions like that that we'll be able to answer. That's the first phase of the study. For the second phase of the study, we're going to be looking at the results of the first phase and saying, based on what we see in the data, which schools are really actually interesting cases that we might want to go into and study? And so we're going to do a case study. Um, and so we'll pick, I think, probably three schools. Um, and we'll be picking them for, I mean, what I imagine is trying to pick schools that um, might be able to teach us something about when it works well, what, what can we learn? You know, or, or um, what are some cases that could really kind of give us insights into the factors that are, that are um, affecting the outcomes? Um, and so the case study in the second phase, which will be in the fall, um, of 2017, we'll be um, going in and interviewing teachers, uh, school leaders, uh, students, 
um, stakeholders, um, trying to understand their perspective on how it's working, um, and hopefully being able to develop a pretty solid model of um, that kind of helps explain the relationship between the policies, the models that are implemented, and people's um, perspectives on you know the factors that really so- sort of support um, you know uh, support the implementation or hinder it. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I think that should be the idea is that that would be really useful to the school divisions to say here here's what it looks when it works well these are the factors that really drive the success of the programs like this and we'll be able to take that back which might lead to a third phase which would be the development of an intervention possibly mm. like and and I mean from my perspective that would be possibly a professional development intervention mm. like how do we train teachers to really do this stuff well how do we train schools to really um, work in this uh, uh, you know uh, to do positive work in this in this space. Um, where we are now, we have our um, we have we're in the phase about to administer the survey. We'll be out in January. We have our getting our data together. We'll do analysis in the spring. We'll have a report in the end of the spring that will be the phase one analysis that will present to the Policy and Planning Council of Merck, which is the leadership, the superintendents, the research directors, and then in um, next fall we'll be going into the case study. So yeah. Then can I just add? So um, I think the exciting part of the study, which Jesse talked about earlier and uh, elaborated on in terms of the details of the study, is we're, it is a research team and a study team coming together, right? So mm-hmm. um, while we're developing the protocols for the survey and the interviews, there's a study team that we uh, where we all come together. There are local um, educators, leaders, including Dr. Noel. Um, so we get feedback and we have conversations about the, about the questions we're asking, whether or not they're relevant, whether or not they're actually useful. And so I think that's where um, the, the study is unique and, and contributes to, the, I think, the, the power of the study will be that it will be, um, hopefully, the findings will be relevant and usable um, to the community. What strikes me about this conversation is that there's so there's different stakeholders at the table, both in the study team and in who you're hoping to who we're hoping to eventually impact from this work, but also that this happens in phases, which I think is a really important thing for people to to recognize, and that there's valuable information that comes along the way. So the kind of conversation that we're having today is really good for grounding what's going to be happening. But once we have more data collected from that survey, once we start talking to folks in schools, um, we'll come to you again, and we'll have these conversations again, and invite you to the table to to listen into it. Um, okay, so let's transition into um, one of our last questions here. Um, Jesse was talking a lot about the, the kind of local impact that we're, we're hoping to have with this study. And William, do you do this work all the time? Um, so how do you expect the findings of this study to have an impact locally? I, I expect the, the study will open the, the, the hearts, the eyes, and the ears of school leaders to start conversations about disproportionality. Um, to talk about the the causes, the negative effects it has on the future of students of color um, and show them that there is a definite need to address this and to uh, implement programs of cultural competency and, and implicit bias because no one wants to think that our teachers, our educators are explicitly biased um, so there must be some implicit bias because the numbers are there, um, as we heard earlier. So um, absolutely, we have to do something to to address that and just to at least acknowledge that something is going on that that uh, is causing the, this disproportionality in discipline. Um, I'm uh, 
I chair this committee called the Student Support and Conduct Committee. Um, it, it's part of the governor's uh, classrooms, not courtrooms initiative uh, regarding the uh, school to prison pipeline. And we're doing some of the same things. And we're planning a conference uh, uh, in March of next year for hearing officers um, to go over some of this same information and, and the need to be more in tune with what's going on. Um, so we're very excited about that. Uh, October, I was in Chicago at the superintendent's discipline conference um, where a number of superintendents across the country um, are moving to what Merck uh, this study committee is doing mm -hmm. when it comes to being proactive when it comes to this disproportionality and not reactive. So uh, the country as a whole uh, is moving in that direction. Uh, and, I, and I'm confident as I can be that this study will have a great impact uh, in the Commonwealth and, and across the country. Yeah. I always, I wonder what it is about this conversation that makes it so hard to have with folks when we're talking about things like implicit bias, right? Well, I think there's a lot of fear of change. And so you, it's how you look at, how you look at discipline. Is it, um, and even I was at, um, AERA, the, um, a big educational research conference, and I was at a, a session on this very topic, and there were people in the audience. I think uh, one woman was from Baltimore, and she said, actually, a lot of the parents fear changing um, the approach to discipline. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not just, you, you know, the, the policymakers, but I think there's a fear of change, and there's a fear that, that doing things differently and doing things in a more educational way is not it means doing nothing mm -hmm. and that's certainly not the case of course jesse made a really crucial point that you need to do to do these things well you do need resources because you can go in the other you can go in the direction of like the way i'm going to deal with with discipline is to, just to suspend and expel but then there's also the way i'm going to deal with disproportionate discipline is i'm going to tell you i don't want any reports of it i don't want any I don't want any discipline reports at all. And so then that is doing nothing. And so I think there's a misunderstanding that all these um, more um, educational and richer approaches to discipline means doing nothing. And it doesn't mean doing nothing. It just means doing things differently. So I think that's where some of the fear, that's where some of the, the um, reluctance is coming from. Yeah. And I think, you know, so um, there there are a lot of factors. So one factor is this idea of the, the role of the individual teacher, the principal, um, you know, these individuals within schools that are contributing to the problem mm -hmm. of disproportionality. Um, but they're also working within, as Jesse and Rachel talked about, larger structures. And so if we, I think, reframe the way that we're discussing the problem and bring light to some of the structural challenges that individuals are facing that contribute to why they might be um, disciplining in certain ways, then it, it again kind of takes the pressure off of individuals specifically and allows people to have a conversation more about systems and structures mm -hmm. that people tend to be more open to talking about, right? Mm -hmm. um, but also, I mean, it's important to be really open about the fact that race continues to be a hard mm -hmm. topic to, <laughs> to talk about. and. Um, 
And so, you know, the more I think that we can normalize it and have these discussions, you know, the, the easier it will be, not only within schools and, the, and um, universities, but in communities, right? Evandra, I think, um, is well-informed, comes from a, a really rich background of understanding what's happening here locally in terms of the community and community um, advocates and activists and organizing. Um, but how do we have all of these conversations with one another so that the conversations, I think, are a little bit easier? I think if we keep the, the focus on the, the main thing, uh, that would help. But I've always told people that we have to get comfortable with having uncomfortable conversations. Mm -hmm. And this subject can be uncomfortable um, for people because it, it's asking them to rethink and change uh, their lifetime. Um, and, and that's not always easy to do for some. Mm -hmm. But if, if we are keeping children first, like it used to be, then we would do that for the sake of making it better. Yeah. And I think um, and also, I mean, how many parallels are there between this and conversations we're having around police um, identification and, uh, you know, uh, it's the implicit bias is the same conversation there. And it's a challenging conversation. And just thinking about the recent election, I mean, race is, race is a, it's, an, it's a national front, issue right now. And it's, it's front and center right now. And this is, um, and, you know, we'll see, what happens, I guess, you know, but, uh, you know, one of the proposals on the, that I heard in terms of like, what, what does this mean for a Department of Education? But one of the first things is I think OCR is like on the chopping, the Office of Civil Rights is on the chopping block, mm -hmm. which means that a lot of the data that we're using to, to understand this issue is going to be not available anymore. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, uh, so that makes the, the work that we're doing even that much more important that we really need to get this out. And it needs to be, we need to insert it into the conversation so that, so that things like this don't get silenced because I think there's a real opportunity for, or, you know, possibility of that happening soon. Mm -hmm. yeah. One thing I'll say about this, as, I mean, as we're considering issues of race and um, checking our own implicit biases, I think another thing we really need to um, maybe audit for ourselves is our apparent need to be punitive in this country yes. and how much we care about um, defining justice as punishment rather That's than right. being something restorative and something that's supposed to bring people back into um, mainstream into being productive citizens. And I think that we lose that a good bit. Okay, so speaking of change, we just recently experienced a pretty big change in this country um, politically. Jesse was just transitioning into this. And depending on where you um, are in, in, in this shift, I think that um, we could all agree that something profound has happened and that something that we, um, we need to react to and something that we've definitely felt pretty um, profoundly in the School of Education here at VCU for sure. Um, and so this is just a, a conversation for us to wrap up just in general about um, where you think the, the future direction is for education policy in this country, how is it going to be reflected federally, locally? Um, Jesse was just talking about the Office of Civil Rights funding being cut. Um, so what, what, are, what are our thoughts on that? Where are you right now with that? Um, I hope that states that have started to um, try to implement, um, you know, more educational um, approaches to discipline stay the course. <laughs> but we could also look at that. I mean, it, one of the recent studies that came out was about disproportionate um, uh, suspension and expulsion in this big block of southern states, many of which, um, you know, voted uh, for, you know, the incoming president. Um, if there's going to be, you know, sort of like a, a sense that the federal government's going to keep less of an eye on that, mm -hmm. um, it, 
what what are the possibilities of it getting solved there? I mean, we can we can focus on Virginia and what we can do in Virginia, but at a national level, we that might be a little bit worrisome. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree totally what Jesse just said regarding that. Um, I'm very concerned um, of, of the direction that that we're going. Um, certainly. Um, if the Office of Civil Rights is on the chopping block, uh, what's next when it comes to uh, programs that support uh, our efforts? Yeah, I think another thing we sh- can look forward to with this administration probably and going forward is really the role states are going to be playing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think states have to be really flexible. We have to really have these pr- data management to capture this data if we're not going to be able to get it federally. And mm-hmm. how does that policy really is going to affect us? And, and, and there's other competing things right now within education when we're talking about discipline with ESSA being implemented. And so you have a lot of competing things right now going on with in terms of policy and how we can really look at addressing discipline. But uh, what we don't have the ability to afford really is re- losing funding especially out of any type of idea funding. We can't afford to lose funding there, and, and we can't um, ha- you know, continue to, to wait and see like, what's really going to happen. We really need to start putting the pressure where it needs to happen, working with these advocacy groups, getting with these parents and families, because it's going to come down to how can we coalesce as a state? What are we going to do? What does our data, data management systems look like? And disproportionate, if, what are the interventions we're going to use? Because this is not something just, just now. We're moving into the twenty. 2020 is coming up in the next four years, and we haven't even began to think about what's going to happen there inside of our schools. And we have a different generation of students coming in, and it's getting more culturally diverse, the students that are coming in. And so I think education policy has to start looking at things culturally, but, you know, really, what are states' roles going to be? Where are we heading? I know some of us once would be like, oh, big government, small government, but I don't know if we know where we're kind of standing right now. Yeah, data is important regardless of where it's collected. What is the ESSA? Every Student Succeeds Act, it's uh, taking place of No Child Left Left Behind, Behind. Mm -hmm. which, you know, No Child Left Behind had its failures, but it did great at starting to collect data. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was one of the leading legislations. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be very explicit that, obviously, I found the narratives and the discourses and the language of of Donald Trump himself, because I'm going to be, you know, I think we have to call him out, too, Mm -hmm. um, really troubling. And especially in this context of the what we know is the diverse students that we have in schools, in urban schools and suburban schools, um, it just it's growing everywhere. And so uh, it, it is going to take a level of vigilance, I think, on our mm-hmm. part, right? Um, and Evandra is bringing up a really good point about the role of the community in monitoring and making sure that we stay the course, because it is likely that the role of the federal government, whether it's they completely... Um, get rid of OCR or funding, is, it's likely going to be around. I imagine funding mechanisms will decrease a great deal for different, you know, uh, the Department of Justice in terms of their reg- regulating and following monitoring issues of civil rights. Um, it, it, you know, that funding is likely to diminish. And so that's where it's interesting because now, you know, usually it's the Democrats who are talking or it's conservatives <laughs> who talk more about states' rights and local rights. Mm-hmm. And now that is becoming more and more important, I think, to those of us who are concerned about um, the civil rights of, of students. Mm-hmm. So I think that'll be important for us as um, scholars, as community activists and advocates, as educators um, to really to be to organize mm-hmm. and to be uh, really well informed um, and to do what we can to make sure that we continue on the 
on this path that I think that we have been on in terms of collecting data and responding to data and doing this research, um, hopefully it continues to develop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we need to be vigilant locally, yeah. for sure. And I think it's, um, it's kind of hard to not be um, nihilistic about where we are as a country right now, just given the discourse of how the election was and how challenging it was and um, what the, the general climate is right now. One, one point of hope that I have and something that might be something that we could um, kind of in a bipartisan way moving forward, potentially focus on, there seems to be more and more conversations about how mandatory minimum sentencing doesn't work, yeah. right? And so that's something that maybe if we're having that broader conversation at the criminal justice level, maybe we can start to draw some parallels for why this matters at the local school level mm -hmm. as well in terms of things like um, school discipline, right? Um, any final thoughts as we wrap up this very important conversation? And we have more ahead of us. Thank you very much. Yeah, sure. Let's, uh, we're going to leave that there for now. Um, a couple of points as we wrap up here. Um, this isn't the last time you're going to hear from these brilliant, wonderful people at this table. Uh, this is an ongoing study. And so although the composition of this group might change as we're having future conversations, a lot of the folks are still going to be the same and the topic's going to be the same and we're going to have new data coming in. So we'll have some really valuable stuff to share with you. The next episode of Abstract is going to focus on a teacher morale study that we've released here with Merck. That, that report's coming out really soon, so it's an important conversation. We hope you'll join us for this. Um, if this is something that you're really interested in, this racial disproportionality conversation, we have an event coming up in February with the School of Education. It's called Racial Disproportionality, School Discipline and Future Directions, a Community Conversation. Um, it's on Monday, February 6th from 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock in the Student Commons Theater. There's a lot of people in this room that are going to be heavily involved in it. The Merck researchers that are a part of this study are going to be giving a presentation. We'll have um, some research presented by Dr. Bill Muth, who does some really important work here, and various community partners. Um, Evandra is going to be moderating a panel. I don't know if she knew that or not, but now she does. <laughs> um, so there's some really great stuff that's going to be coming up with that, and we're going to be recording that. Uh, event for this podcast and sharing it with you there as well. And we'll be interviewing folks as they come into the event to capture their their sentiment, what they're thinking about, and why they're there. Uh, so this is an ongoing conversation that we're going to have. But um, I'm grateful for everybody who was here today. So Rachel, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Ade, Tara, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jesse Seneschal. Thanks yep. for being with us. Thanks. William, my thank pleasure. You for being with us and Evandra. All right. Uh, my name is David. This has been the first of many episodes of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium. Thanks for joining us.